welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here, welcoming you to another episode of Tall Poppies, the podcast. It's been a busy few months for the Tall Poppies project. A few days back, we hosted the fifth Tall Poppies Talk, a salon held every few months at a wonderful and intimate space in Berlin. As always, an enthusiastic audience packed the venue to hear and interact with our guest of honour, who was this time Sydney-born neuroscientist and violinist Matthew Larkham. Keep an ear out for my podcast featuring this extraordinary Australian coming up soon. Once again, special thanks to the podcast sponsors. Your financial contributions make it possible for this project to continue. For those of you who might be considering sponsoring the podcast and thereby allowing me to continue my research, interviewing and production of this living archive, do drop by the Tall Poppies website. you find it at tall-poppies.com. And here's the direct link to the Patreon page, which makes donating to this project easy. Patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. Patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. And Tall Poppies Talk is written together as one word. I give that to you again. Patreon.com backslash Tall Poppies Talk. And don't forget our podcast archives, which feature in-depth interviews with many phenomenal Australian luminaries, including the author Gail Jones, theatre director Barry Kosky, and philosopher Peter Singer. But now, let me introduce you to this episode's guest. Around about that time, if you were to walk past our place or come visit us, you know, we'd get home from school at four, there might have been something to eat, five, and I think it was around about between five and eight, at any given time, there were probably four of us practicing in four rooms. I mean, it would have sounded like a conservatorium, and uh, and all violins, so, you know, when everyone's, I won't use the word screeching, but when everyone's playing around in those high registers all at the same time, I know it's a good thing that everybody in Australia has their own house, I think, because <laughs> I don't think you'd find it flat here in, in the city uh, with neighbours above and below that would put up with that sort of noise. <laughs> That's Stanley Dodds, an extraordinary musician and a violinist with the renowned Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra since the early 90s. Stan is also a conductor and frequently directs ensembles of the Berlin Philharmonic and was appointed principal conductor of the Berlin Symphony Orchestra in 2014. Other guest conductor appearances include engagements with the Orchestra Philharmonique in Luxembourg, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, the Berlin Sharon Ensemble, and the Australian World Orchestra. Hello, 
I think if I look back on my life, how it started with violin and it went to string ensemble, and now it's landed with the orchestra and it's settled very, very firmly in the orchestra environment, I think I could safely say that I live now for orchestras. Stan is dedicated to working with youth and amateur orchestras and is in charge of the Berlin Philharmonic School's Orchestra Concert and Youth Composition Workshop. Indeed, he is also a member of the Berlin Philharmonic Executive Board, where his management portfolios include media rights and the development of digital streaming and communications platforms. But Stan's career in music started back in Adelaide, where he was one of five siblings, four of whom have become professional violinists. Stan was born in Canada, but shortly after his birth, his parents moved to Australia. His mum is Chinese, and his dad was originally from Armadale in New South Wales. They were both mathematicians and had met in Canada. At just four years of age, Stan started violin lessons with Mrs. Larsons, an Adelaide music teacher who ran a studio that became the breeding ground for many outstanding musicians. Three of these were indeed Stan's siblings. When his father took a sabbatical to Austria, the family accompanied him and Stan attended the Musikgymnasium in Linz. This was an important time for the young musician who later returned to study at the Lucerne Conservatory and then at the Carrion Academy in Berlin before joining the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in 1994. Since that time, Stan has also studied conducting, where his mentors include Claudio Abbado and Sir Simon Rattle. Stan has made his home in Berlin, where together with his wife, the cellist Rowena Spirit Dodds from Queensland, he has three grown-up children. He was recently our guest of honour at the Tall Poppies Talk Salon in Berlin, and I caught up with him in between his busy schedule. Stan Dodds, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Here we are in Berlin. You've been here a little bit longer than me, 1994, when you first came. How's your sort of relationship with this city changed over those years? I mean, it was quite an interesting time to arrive, four years after the fall of the wall. Um, It wasn't love at first sight, I have to admit. (laughs) I mean, I was fascinated by uh, the city the first time I visited was actually around... uh, uh, 1991 was only a f- really a few months even after the wall had come down and and it consisted mostly of a tour throughout the night in various suburbs of Berlin at a New Year's Eve various New Year's Eve parties and I was struck how there is so much going on behind the scenes in this town and so many different circles of people and I, I found that uh, fascinating but um, when I actually moved here I came from or had been living for five years in the very idyllic Swiss mountain, little bigger than a village, but still it's a small town, Lucerne, mm. on, the, on the banks of a wonderful lake and surrounded by mountains. And uh, so I had become a little bit accustomed to this um, postcard perfectness. And when you come to Berlin from such a physically beautiful place, you are struck by how rundown some places seem, how you seem to get... Um, uh, grandeur juxtaposed with 
dereliction. You get uh, magnificent buildings side by side with post-war 50s, 60s, uh, fast constructed uh, functional buildings. And the general impression is certainly not one of coherence. And it just seems to be a little bit chaotic. A little bit hard-nosed, for sure. I mean, that's the the famous character of the Berliner is one who just gives it straight back to you hard as nails. The yeah, the so-called um, yeah schnauzer. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, actually, over time, I grew to appreciate exactly that side of Berlin as something else. Namely, I began to see it as uh, um, maybe some of them are definitely scars from its history it has an incredibly lively history in the last particularly the last 150 years or 100 years um and somehow when you drive around the city it's like looking at a a, a wonderful being but where you see many many signs of the tumultuous life that it has had and in and thus i began to see berlin more as a living thing rather than a statically beautiful object to admire it is a very human place in that it's uh, it's been the site of great human trial tribulate and tribulation suffering but also uh, unbelievable cutting edge thought and work in the arts in the sciences I mean you I am always fascinated by those pictures from like Berlin in the 10s and 20s when you have someone like Albert Einstein sitting in a room not unlike a room in which I live with his violin playing together with some other professors you know I mean you know professed music addict and that was probably happening, you know, a little more than a stone's throw from where I'm living. And so to to live amongst these types of stories, I mean, I, by the same token, you have to also think, you know, what was happening here in the 30s and 40s. There are memories of that here on the streets. When you walk around the suburbs, you see these little brass ingots in the in the, in the, in the sidewalks, reminding you of Jewish families that were forcibly removed from these same houses and taken away, often to their death. Um, the whole history of then the the wall and uh, and all of the attempts to try and override that 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 human need for 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 freedom of spirit by enclosing it all in some some ideological uh, capsule and then how that broke down. I mean, no, no matter where you turn, you see a different facet of our existence in a way. And I think what I grew to be really attached to is this multifaceted uh, side to Berlin, where you can see. The scars, but also the, uh, the 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 beautiful side to that as well. Everywhere you walk. What about that remarkable institution of which you are a member, the Berlin Philharmonic? Can you sense within it also some of those scars, some of those various aspects of history over the years? Perhaps a little less than the way the city presents itself to you. I mean, the city is full of icons which re uh, represent very directly certain periods. I mean, you know, you take the Tempelhof Airport. I mean, that is a gigantic piece of uh, Albert Speer and, 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 and Hitler plan uh, city planning. I wouldn't say that those uh, that we uh, in the orchestra are confronted with that sort of thing in, in that um, direct way. I mean, every now and again, you might pe uh, get a piece of music put in front of you where it says, yes, this did belong to the Reichsrundfunkanstalt, but this is really rare because, I mean, in the end, we're a contemporary orchestra and we, we play from modern materials. You're more likely to encounter that perhaps in some other circles. But there's no denying that although this orchestra sees itself as a progressive orchestra in terms of that we've always been interested in, for example, the cutting edge of media uh, 
um, recordings, you know, being one of the orchestras that pioneered uh, the CD, for example, pioneering streaming with our digital concert hall. So on some on some level, we, we see ourselves as very progressive. We chose Simon Rattle as our chief conductor on particularly that uh, on that wave of, you know, where is an orchestra headed in the 21st century? But nevertheless, uh, by the same token, we're very, very uh, conscious of our tradition um, and the tr- tradition being uh, commencing in the 1880s with uh, with Boulot and, of course, a very important chapter then uh, before and during the war, war with Fort Wengler. Um, and all of the problematic uh, approach to the person of Fort Wengler that is associated with it. It's not something we talk about every day, but, I mean, I often think that the way we approach certain repertoire, even the way we regard certain repertoire as, as a core of our existence is probably still a relic from those days when people like Fort Wengler and then perhaps followed up by Karian uh, made it so. Even Karian himself, uh, he had a history also with the with the Nazi Party. So, this is certainly a part of the orchestra, but as it is probably a part of anybody with the German history who's been in this country in the last hundred years, and it's no it's no more, no less than others. Um, uh, we, uh, I think, the orchestra did benefit uh, in some ways also from the uh, the, the Nazi. Uh, policies here. I mean, there were some great culture lovers amongst the Nazi uh, um, leadership, and uh, you know, you can't choose the people who are your greatest fans. Uh, they love music, and so there was sometimes a bit of a fight to see who could support the Berlin music institutions more. And uh, it was actually the period when our orchestra went from being a freelance orchestra on the brink of extinction existential extinctions because you know with the gigs coming or not to being actually a government or a state-funded uh, institution that actually occurred in the 30s and 40s um, and so there you go that's uh, our, our very structure uh, institutional structure that we have today has a certain history uh, going back to that time as uh, for example do the autobahns in Germany you know there's, there's a you, you when you live here you, you have to find a way of uh, reconciling your, your yourself with the fact that there is a bright and a dark side to everything and that sort of the two of them together comprise life. Let's jump back a bit, though. Yeah. You're the son of two mathematicians. We've, you've been kind enough to be a guest in our salon here in Berlin. We've already talked about lots of this. And for your parents, it was very important that you, know, you got a musical education and things. What, what sort of relationship did they have with music that led them to think, OK, we're going to make sure that our family all learn an instrument in a particular way? I think, uh, well, I mean, my parents came, both of them, from very different backgrounds. My mother was from China and grew up in Taiwan before going to the U.S. to study. My father was from 
Armadale in Australia, so a, a university town. I think that my mother had some musical education as part of her general education as it was offered. I think there was some basic piano instruction. I think that was basically considered as in just one of the other subjects in, a, in, in, the, in that uh, palette of subjects that one studies at school. It wasn't a dedicated or focused musical education, but there was something there. Even, uh, you know, many decades later, she could still sing songs that she'd learnt. Interestingly, very often familiar Western children's songs, but with a Chinese text. <laughs> some They could even be opera arias or something. So they were somehow onto a lot of uh, Western culture through music, but adapted to their specific educational needs at the time. Um, for my father, the way I understood it was growing up in Armadale for him as a young boy, his uh, most of the, what took up his time outside of school and work uh, was uh, was actually sports. And not to mention just getting outdoors, I think. I think there was a certain amount of being outdoors, doing outdoor things. But certainly things like rugby and cricket were were the main focus and if I understand correctly he wasn't really confronted with classical music until he was maybe 17 or 18 years old. You can remember isolated contact with I think visiting orchestras could even be the Sydney Symphony came and did an outreach concert Uh, that may or may not have been the case Um, but he can remember very distinctly the first time he sat down and someone put on a record and he listened to it and thought this was really beautiful and it was Beethoven Violin Concerto with Wolfgang Schneiderhahn. What good taste! Well, he was lucky. Yeah, it seems like I think he he did have the good fortune to be around some people who did know a thing or two. And um, and I'd say what happened was that in his case, it awakened a fascination. And I know that when he at various stages, uh, then during his studies, he actually tried to find out more about it, but usually on a autodidactic uh, level. So he bought a recorder, bought a book, and tried to figure out how to play it. Um, and so I think there was this, uh, there was a, a deep fascination for the idiom. Yeah, and I think he also grew up, though, believing that music was uh, an important thing for kids to learn. It was a good thing for them. And so uh, I think that was something my parents concurred with uh, on or agreed on immediately. And then sort of uh, when that came to be that they had kids of their own and uh, and they heard about a good teacher nearby, well, that seemed to be just simply the right thing to do. And as it was, the teacher was very, very serious about it and it was much more than just a, a sort of a casual once-a-week thing. It actually became all-encompassing and to the extent where it influenced any sporting uh, um, ambitions I might have had because suddenly your fingers mattered so that meant basketball didn't work and Aussie rules football didn't work and cricket was absolutely off-limits. So I was just left with athletics. That was all, all I could do. <laughs> that, that's sort of unusual for an Australian because, I mean, you know, an Australian upbringing, you know, we're, we're pushed outside. That cricket bat is forced into our hands or we're out playing footy almost before we're out of nappies. Well, I mean, we still we still play backyard cricket, but we never play with a cricket ball. We play with a tennis ball. And, um, and yes, of course, I kicked the Aussie rules football around and, and, and could do a, a decent drop punt and screwy. But uh, the thing was, I couldn't join the the teams because it was sort of considered if I did it too much it was and I even I I didn't actually I don't think I fought it actually I wasn't because it was uh, the thing I had enough challenges and was enjoying what I was doing and I could get away with my very basic ball skills on the playground so that I didn't have to sit in the corner and only, <laughs> I don't know, whatever it would be. Back then well, you couldn't listen to stuff. But <laughs> yeah, Stan Dodge, you're better than me because I couldn't. I was so hopeless at all of this. But anyhow, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> Tell us about, though, this, these, these first lessons because uh, we've established already that this is quite a remarkable teacher. She has been responsible for turning out many 
wonderful string players over the years. Her name was Mrs. Larson's, right? Well, uh, it was actually a friend's daughter was learning there. That was mm. the connection. And it was less than, it was about four or five kilometres from our place. So very easy, drivable distance. Um, uh, and then, of course, it was, uh, I, I believe, she auditioned all prospective students by inviting them around. And, uh, and the first thing you would do was just sing a few notes at the piano because she placed a great emphasis on oral training. And based on that, I think she would make up her mind whether there was a basic aptitude or not. I mean, exactly how uh, that hour was, all I know is that she did also place a great emphasis on the parents supervising, particularly small kids. So she demanded a, a, a large commitment also from my parents, which my parents, I think because they were interested in music and, and this became in a way uh, a chance for that musical education they never got themselves but were so curious about. So indeed, my father and my mother sat with all of us and we were four of us at, at one stage for, I'd say, a good six, seven years, and, I'm, and I mean everyday practice. So it started off at the piano, we would sing, and then you'd play your scales and pieces. And of course, when there were several of us playing, it meant that they would walk between the rooms. But uh, they were certainly um, important co-tutors in that respect. You know, they would be at the lesson, they would write down what it was, and uh, they were very involved. And I think I have a lot to thank them for, for that, because that is, uh, there is a certain age from which, of course, you have to encourage kids to become independent to work for themselves to see the value and, and to structure the way they work so that um, they can progress um, but uh, there's no doubt that at the beginning you need adult supervision for the small kids um, and and then you've got to find the right measure too both your mum and dad uh, both of them took part in it mm. i mean at some point they sort of split up a little bit and i think it was a little bit dad did the boys and mum did the girls but i i think it was all whoever was there and and unavailable Tell us about those lessons. You mentioned already, of course, solfege, in other words, singing right from the very beginning. And this uh, particular teacher had a, a very specific way of doing it. And we, we learned along the way that uh, she actually wasn't a string player herself, but a very good pianist. And there was a lot of work already right from very early on, working with the violin and the piano all the time. She must have been quite convincing in many ways. You know, your parents have decided to basically follow through with four of you with the same teacher over those years. You know, it's it's a it's a really long time ago and it's it's hard to say exactly how it was. I mean, I remember a tall, strict, but nevertheless with a certain softness and she was someone you wanted to please, mm. demanding. I mean, it was clear what we had to do and a very specific part of the entire musical training was singing. It was singing with the solfege. If you got a new piece, for example, you had to first, before you were allowed to play it, you first had to sing it and with the note name. So I think, I mean, I understand now why that's so important because if you can hear a piece, it's much easier to find it on the instrument than if you can't hear it yet and have to find it on the instrument. But she was, uh, I mean, without doubt, a very authoritative figure. I don't remember her being loud or abrasive or... I remember, like I said, I remember wanting to please her. I think that's a very important part of any student-teacher relationship, actually, mm. is that, that you you want to, you want to please. Um, and then after a few years, it just actually you, you, it just becomes what you do. Mm. Um, you don't even really think about it that much anymore. But I have... Uh, I have Good memories. I have no traumatic memories of that time whatsoever, really. 
She placed a lot of emphasis on ensemble playing also from the beginning too, didn't she? Well, the ensemble was a bit special because it was only violins. And mm. so it was a violin ensemble. There would be at most two parts, two violin parts. Uh, she would sit down at the piano. We would go every Saturday morning and we would have a list of repertoire and we had to play it by heart. That was the other thing. We had to play everything by heart. Um, had to be learned from memory, including these ensemble pieces. And so memory training was also a very important part of the musical education and when you sat there in the group you had to know your part I mean, she would say then by next week everybody has to have this piece by heart and uh, so that way she developed uh, this was called silver strings ensemble and uh, and uh, she developed a repertoire and this ensemble would go and play two concerts a year in Adelaide but there were a couple of highlights as a kid I can still remember very distinctly when we were asked to play at a surprise birthday party for the governor of South Australia which meant being smuggled into a government house. And back then it was the 70s, you know, so the boys were wearing velvet tuxes with vests that our mothers had all made and the girls had these flashy dresses with sort of peacock feathers or something all around. Really cute when you look back at the pictures. And we were smuggled in and then taken into this room full of gold and and, and I remember being very impressed with the aide-de-camp because he had this gold braid over his left (laughs) shoulder and and, uh, and anyway so the doors opened we we did this surprise birthday party for him and played our little numbers and he was absolutely delighted and then we all went home and tried to make the gold braid out of the nearest uh, skipping rope we could find because we were were so fascinated by this. (laughs) Oh it's a nice story. What about uh, Mrs. Larson, what did you find out about her? She's where she was from, her background and things like that. Did that reveal itself over the years? I mean, you know now, of course, and you can maybe share that with us again. Yeah, I actually, I have to admit, ashamedly, I don't know very many specifics about her background. I know that there is a side to her story of fleeing Europe. She was a refugee of some kind. Um, she had a tattooed number on her on her forearm, I seem to remember. But what exactly this means, that would be a whole nother story, and I would be extremely fascinated to know more mm. about it. Mm. I mean, from whom they escaped and under which conditions. Uh, I know it was via Western Europe. There was something about Belgium. It was about the time her children were born. But I'm, I feel like I'm the completely the wrong person to even begin to surmise about what, what the actual story is. But obviously grateful refugees to Australia at that time. And she was from Latvia, and Latvia has in the last years turned out many great musicians, hasn't it? Indeed it has. I often, I am often struck by the fact how for a small country there are so many world-class musicians, um, conductors, soloists, um, uh, at part of, as part of our musical business. Indeed. Indeed. Five kids, but four of you were violinists, and there was that year when you were 15, your dad had a sabbatical and you came to Europe your first connection with Europe and all of a sudden that relationship with music changed quite a bit didn't it? It did because uh, uh, for the first time I was put into a school environment um, where music was the central focus for everybody who was at that school because it was a special music school Um, so all of those who were passionate about music and who were studying music at the conservatorium were at that school um, and it's a school it was a school with a long history as well um, with some very successful alumni amongst Amongst them, Franz Velsenmust, who had just graduated the year before we arrived. So the school was still on a high from the work he'd done as in some of his first years as conductor, actually. You must mention that he is a very famous conductor these days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. So this was the environment that we came into. And uh, and suddenly playing violin was something that could be integrated uh, into our school life. 
and any musical talent that we had was uh, seen as a valuable asset in, let's say, the normal everyday environment. I was used to keeping uh, the environments somewhat separate. There would be a school environment, there would be a music environment, and uh, and I kept them distinct in Australia. It was a little bit the nature, perhaps, of the way I was trained in Australia and the nature of the studio at which I study. I'm not saying it has to be like that, not at all. It was just the way that happened for me. But in Austria, that uh, those two sides really came together. And, I mean, there were various experiences. There were, and not all of them necessarily of the highest uh, sort of quality. We played a lot of solo with a small orchestra in little villages around uh, around Linz. We, um, uh, I took part in, at, at New Year's and at, at Carnival when the school orchestra gets together and just more or less sight reads Vienna waltzes all night, you know, much like what we hear the Vienna Philharmonic do. But they do this as just part of their normal tradition. I mean, these, these were the sorts of experiences where you saw how what people did as music or going on, for example, on Sunday and, and playing a mass in a Baroque church uh, with one rehearsal and getting pa- paid some more than I was used to seeing and then going out and buying myself some nice clothes. I mean, yeah, you could say I was spoiled. Music moved away from just something I did for pleasure and ideal reasons and then suddenly became there was the prospect that this could be a livelihood even. Mm. All, all these things were uh, new experiences for me. With music moving into the same sort of category as the academic work, did you find that it maybe influenced it a little? Did it help it in any way? Not really. Uh, I think what was new for me, though, is that I had music subjects at school and I had a music professor who uh, I think had an appreciation for all things to do with learning, of which now music was a part. I think it simply enriched the school environment because... uh, you had more variety, actually. Mm. I think that's what's nice about it. It's a bit like the way, you know, your sport lessons at school mix it up. Well, I, the thing is, it doesn't need to be just sport and academic. You can have sport and music and academic, and that's three different ways. Or, I mean, I loved high school when, you know, you got to that stage where you would be doing things like cooking and metalwork and photography and then maths and then sports. I mean, I, I think there's one thing that I've always appreciated, and that's variety, because I think my interests are very restless and go in many directions. What about time to practice, though? Well, that was a good thing about the school. It, it was structured so that uh, the, the students of that school took an extra year to do their finishing certificate. Um, and the time that that freed up on every school day was then reserved for practice. In other words, school finished an hour, two hours earlier than all the other schools in Austria. Oh, wow. Each day. So that you would have that time for lessons and to practice. Yeah, right. Well, that's quite that's quite something, quite a special place. You went back to Australia, wasn't going to be for long. You finished your matriculation there in Adelaide, and then it was coming back to Europe again. Uh, by this stage, you already had three other siblings that were playing as well. What what, what was that like as a music? Did you discuss violin playing? And I mean, was there a lot of chamber music together? I mean, there's not much around for four strings. Mm-hmm. Of course, if your parents were mathematicians, perhaps if they'd thought about it, they might have had a cellist, a viola player, and a, another violinist, and we could have a quartet or something. But, you know, um, what what was life like in the, the musical aspect of the, the Dodds family? Well, if, if I remember rightly, around about that time, if you were to walk past our place or come visit us, you know, we get home from school at four, there might have been something to eat, five. And I think it was around about between five and eight at any given time, there were probably four of us practicing in four rooms. I mean, it would have sounded like a conservatorium and, uh, and all violins. So, you know, when everyone's... <laughs> I won't use the word screeching, but when everyone's playing around in those high registers all at the same time, I know it's a good thing that everybody in Australia has their own house, I think, because <laughs> I don't think you'd find a flat here in, in the city uh, with neighbours above and below that would put up with that sort of noise. 
<laughs> Indeed. You came back and, of course, then the son of Mrs. Larson's then came to be your teacher again, so you followed it on. What was it like coming back? You already, by that stage, had done a little bit more German. You had established yourself in that respect. And then to join the, the tertiary education aspect of Europe. Um, when I went back to Australia after the year in Austria, I already knew I was coming back and I knew where I was going. So it was almost as if the year in Australia was spent as a year away mm. um, because I knew I wanted to come back and study. But I did at least make provisions. I, I finished my matriculation in Adelaide such that I had a place in, an, uh, uh, in a Bachelor of Engineering waiting for me at Adelaide University just in case I didn't like it. So I did at least follow the academic side through and, and this was... Um, my plan B. but when, Was that the influence of your parents or yours? Well, it was just actually what I'd been studying. I did uh, two maths and a physics and, uh, and then English and German. So the, the sort of technical side was there. And I always have had a penchant for, for those sorts of things. And uh, to me, mechanical, electrical or engineering seemed to be a fairly natural way to keep studying if I was going to keep doing the school things. Um, but I got over to Europe and, and, uh, and I was in Lucerne and very soon I was playing as a member of a chamber orchestra festival strings Lucerne that was you know immediately traveling around not just Europe but the world and uh, playing a bit of solo and I was basically a professional although I was only 19 I was earning my own income and uh, combining that then with uh, the studies uh, it was a teaching diploma that I was doing there that's what was offered this is before the time when everything is um, um, standardized to a bachelor so it was officially a teaching diploma but it had similar um, subject uh, spread to what you would get in a bachelor course so simply combining all of that and pretty well actually enjoying life i don't think i have thought for a moment about going back and doing the engineering degree that uh, was uh, it only took a couple of weeks and it was forgotten <laughs> yeah i was uh, having too much fun and uh, and learning something and uh, like i said this was professional activity already at very early ages so you know um, standing on the stage and performing at regular intervals traveling and um, and this was as much a part of my studies as uh, as the actual individual lessons um, and then discovering repertoire discovering chamber music the only thing that really didn't uh, develop during that time uh, in Lucerne were, was my knowledge of orchestral repertoire because uh, my contact was with a string orchestra. Uh, I was learning individual repertoire and at most playing string quartet or piano trios. So there was still one great big hole in my musical education, and that was orchestras. And I was uh, only about to address that um, when I finished my studies in Lucerne and found myself as a member of uh, the Karyan Academy, which is the... Uh, well, uh, academy that is run by the Berlin Philharmonic. That was when all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, I've got so much stuff to learn, but to discover as well, and how wonderful it all is. I assume you came to Europe, back to Europe, what, 88, 89. How aware were you of all the other things that were happening around you in Europe? You know, 89 was quite a, a controversial year in many ways. There were lots of things happening politically all over the place. What, were you tucked away from all of that or were people discussing it? What was, what was the atmosphere like? 
I mean, I, I you know, in Switzerland, I'm quite protected, and 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 Switzerland is it's in in some ways, uh, it has an insular side to to the, especially when you live inside central Switzerland. Um, but nevertheless, there was one, I think in the summer of 89, I was on tour as a soloist playing Brahms concerto with a Czech orchestra in Switzerland. Mm. And I can remember how they were all glued to their radios. Mm. I mean, so, and because that was the summer when there were basically gaps appearing in the Iron Curtain where all of a sudden one embassy would say, oh, well, you can get through here today. And people were going through. And there was a bit of a revolution going on also in the Czech Republic where I think... Uh, and so, so things were moving, and yes, I was getting a sense of that. The significance of the wall coming down, it had as much relevance for me as it would for anybody of my age who hadn't perhaps been there and who was not, let's say, particularly politically cute or astute, maybe is the, better, is the right word. Um, it was happening. It seemed momentous, and, uh, but I'd say if had I been in Berlin and experienced it firsthand, it would have been very different. Had I grown up in Europe, had I grown up in Germany, had I grown up close to the wall, um, would have been very different. I mean, I think this is maybe this is what happens also when you have lived most of your life a long way away, um, like in Australia, where you read about it, and but you can read about everything almost in a th- theoretical sense. So it's a different thing when you're there and breathing the air and uh, dealing with the people or dealing with things firsthand. Suddenly it goes from theory to practice, and for whatever reason, it always feels different. Mm. Did you have much contact with your folks? I mean, when I think about it in this day and age, for when I first moved to Europe, I had used to have to save up to ring home. You know, it was an expensive thing to uh, be in contact with Australia in those days. These days, of course, it's quite different. But um, you were a long way from home and, you know, your your parents were busy with other siblings. Um, it's interesting you ask because just the other day I found a box with all my correspondence uh, going back right until uh, that time when I moved back over to Europe. And it's, as you say, well, I can remember telephoning was out of the question. It just didn't happen. Um, but there were letters, um, and what I found the other day were copies of the faxes used to stick in the machine. Oh, yeah. And and the great joy at um, being able to write a letter, and instead of waiting the ten days for it to arrive, let alone the reply and a potential, uh, you know, uh, suddenly you you stuck it into this machine, it ate it up, and you knew that it appeared on the other side. And this already felt like a miracle. And how we've moved on since then. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Yes, trying to explain that to a generation where you can WhatsApp call and things like this is quite something. I agree. We're going to move, of course, to 94. 94 actually was not that long after the fall of the wall. Um, but you came to join the Carry On Academy and you started to play in the orchestra. You started to play in the Academy Orchestra there to start with. And you moved from being in tertiary education to working with people from within an orchestra. In other words, people, a different type of training in some ways. These people were craftsmen from the orchestra they knew their job that i'm wondering what about the difference of moving from this academic training into really what's considered a breeding ground for orchestra members in many ways it must have been quite different their approach they probably did you have to do more orchestral excerpts or did they train you in a certain in a different sort of way it was 93, actually, September, when I, I came and started with the Karyan Academy. And coming to Berlin made me, it put me in an environment, because the way the academy works is that uh, you have lessons with uh, the principals in the orchestra, you play with the orchestra um, as, as part of your stipend, 
Sometimes you get paid for it if you do anything above that, and they will also give you instruction on chamber music and things like that. But the environment itself, just sort of uh, listening to the orchestra from the outside, which was still a relatively new experience for me, even just from the outside, let alone sitting on the inside, and watching all the phenomena around me and watching the reactions of people who'd sat in orchestras for 40 years, watching conductors in front of the orchestra who, you know belong to the best i mean i'd heard of these conductors um and realizing that i didn't have the faintest idea what was going on here i mean i would see the conductor do something and i could not see the connection between what the conductor was doing and the way people were reacting i just i didn't understand how this worked because it was new i mean a body of people simply reacts a little different than you do as an individual it requires more time sometimes it's a little tardier or whatever but then again they would sometimes do things together which i understood didn't know where it came from they were phrasing you know they were uh, modulating notes there were and this of course this would be the tradition maybe this is the way they always the first time i played a brahms symphony of the orchestra i was absolutely perplexed because they were doing all this stuff that wasn't written in the music they just did it because that's what they always used to do um and so the, i guess there's no other way to describe that type of training than learning by doing mm which I think is actually one of the most important learning methods ever. Um, You're just in there and you are surviving and you have a basic set of skills, which means you will hopefully not make such a bad impression and not keep putting your foot in it so as to disturb what's going on but on the other hand it's a it there's a certain um, excitement and accompanying anxiety that goes with it as you try and absorb what's going on and in the end it's all about experience it's about being open-minded it's also about trying to get outside your own worries and just trying to absorb what's around you i think this is a really really important uh, factor of playing in orchestra it's to listen to what else is going on in, in in what you're doing and not only you know because sometimes if you're worried about something your tendency will be to narrow the focus down and concentrate incredibly uh, intensely on what you're doing but the big problem with that when you're in an environment uh, surrounded uh, an orchestral environment is that means you've shut everybody else out and you're useless mm-hmm. to the collective so I guess what I was learning is I was becoming socialized as a musician on a, on a large scale. I wasn't used to it in chamber music. I was used to it in a string orchestra, but now this was yet something other again. Um, and then it was basically the beginning of, I would say, a new stage in my education, which really went on long after I then auditioned for the orchestra, got in the orchestra, passed my uh, probationary period. But even then, I would say it took a good 10 years until I had the feeling... Okay, now in my particular position, I think I've seen many of the parameters and I'm beginning to understand. And the next stage of understanding what was going on was, of course, then when I took on the conductor's role myself and realized it isn't as easy as it looks. Um, uh, and that all of my um, unbridled criticisms of conductors until that date was a little bit unfair. And, <laughs> and suddenly finding myself thinking about how do you solve these problems? What's the best thing? And... Uh, it's, uh, I think, one of the great privileges about being a musician and particularly for myself living here in Berlin with my roles as a player but also as a conductor is it's an ongoing process of education, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, any piece that you've done 10 years ago, you'll come and do it again. Uh, it, it feels different because of what's happened in the 10 years before. Any piece you played 100 times as a player in the orchestra, you come conductor the first time, it's still a new piece because you're hearing and reacting and, and your responsibilities are different. The fortunate thing really is actually to be able to experience this phenomena of orchestra playing and repertoire 
from both sides. And I think if I look back on my life, how it started with violin and it went to string ensemble and now it's landed with the orchestra and it's settled very, very firmly in the orchestra environment. I think I could safely say that I live now for orchestras. Being in one of the world's finest ensembles, you encounter many of the great musicians around the place, conductors, composers, the lot. Did you ever just wake up one day and you think, okay, well, tonight we've got a concert, um, you know, Abado's conducting and maybe the soloist is Marta Agari or something like this. And you just sort of think, am I, you know, slightly overwhelmed by that sometimes? I think the word overwhelming is absolutely dead right. It Mm. was overwhelming. As I said, when I got into it at the beginning, I was also very inexperienced and I I felt not only overwhelmed but I felt quite inadequate as well and so that was you know part of the catching up I felt I personally had to do but it's also interesting from another point of view because I grew up every morning at whenever the alarm clock went off in the morning six or six thirty and we had it tuned to ABC FM and uh, so we would hear the news and then we would hear music until we managed to get out of bed <laughs> and uh, and I can still remember all the names that I used to hear I mean there was a lot of St. Um, St. Martin's uh, Academy in the fields um, there were Mariner but there, there were various names that kept cropping up whatever it used to be the standard playlist back then and then to find myself in an environment where suddenly these people who I knew as abstract things that came out of a radio these were now people and I think that was also another uh, thing was to observe these people as people you know I mean uh, you listen to them on recordings. A recording is, in the end, it's a, it's a static document of one particular, uh, you know, go at the work, um, edited or not edited, whatever. But when you have the real human beings there, you know, you can see that human beings, they have their, you know, there's sometimes this effort, sometimes it, it, it's not. It's not that it's not perfect and it's not that I was encouraged by the fact that, you know, they are mere mortals because some of them still were doing incredible things. But you realize that in the end that being the human being in this situation is that which is common to us all um and you can i mean you can be uh, you can feel completely intimidated by that or you can find it encouraging as well and i, I think i certainly found it encouraging i mean it was very often a great incentive to go back and try things mm-hmm. because you see that there are to any given problem there are any number of solutions and what's so inspiring is to be Um, in the presence of people who have obviously thought about this much, much more than I have or worked on it much more seriously than I have. And at least you can just follow a little bit in in that direction in trying to develop and improve yourself. I mean, this is, I think that's the positive side of that environment. Um, once you get over the overwhelmed (laughs) side and the, the, the feeling of being completely intimidated by all this potency and talent. Quite something. Tell us about Abado and, and the things that he was particularly good at. I mean, you know, I have the great honour, I find it in many ways, of talking to musicians from different orchestras. And the Israeli Philharmonic, for example, it doesn't matter who you ask in that orchestra, they'll always say for them one of the most important things was Bernstein and, and Mahler, for example. And is, is there a sort of a, a thing that you, when you think about Abado that you can sort of connect with him straight away and the thing that he did maybe the best? 
Well, interestingly, I think it's Mahler as well. Right. Oh, wow. Um, I think that was one of the one of his really great fortes. I mean, in some ways, I think he brought Mahler into the center of our repertoire more so. I think Karyam was very careful with Mahler. I think he waited a long time before he addressed it. And uh, there was with us also one, I wasn't there, but there was a Bernstein experience with Mahler 9, which my older colleagues also said was the most memorable experience of their life. It's I would have loved to have experienced him. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, he wasn't frequently in Berlin. There was, uh, I don't know if Karyam was so keen that such a charismatic person should um, perhaps come too often. I don't know. But uh, certainly Abado and Mahler, to, that's something I will never forget. I mean, I did a lot of this repertoire. Coming to Berlin, not being experienced in orchestral playing, I did a lot of things for the first time mm. with Abado. So, for example, I did all the Brahms symphonies for, with him for the first time. Did a lot of the Beethoven symphonies with him for the first time. And it they were good. Mm. They were really good. And they uh, formed, uh, no doubt, they're sort of like, um, that's the corner of the universe from which I started my journey with these works. I mean, I may have gotten come a long way since then, uh, and then and, and look back on it and say, well, I wouldn't do it like that anymore or I, does, I don't agree with that anymore. But certainly, uh, I don't know. I just think I was fortunate because they ended up being my mother's milk with these pieces. It's very nice to start with these works at that level um, and not fight your way up from another place. Yeah. I felt very inspired by him when he conducted. I, I felt he was beautiful to watch. And after a while, I did understand how to play with him or how to um, how to incorporate what he was doing it was a very indistinct way of conducting sometimes where it wasn't certainly not it wasn't something where you try and play with the beat he would suggest much more phrases he would get incredibly a, a far ahead of the orchestra I mean he could often be you know several beats in front of the orchestra if you were to analyze where his movements were and yet when you were playing it didn't really seem to matter this was a particular skill that he had of uh, sort of like someone who runs ahead of the group just to show you where it's going to go, but you don't feel like you've got to run too. You're just trotting along with the herd. He's gone ahead and pointed something out to you, and you can incorporate that when you then pass that moment. That's the way I saw the way he did things. Um, other people would have just said, could you please give us a clear beat? Because they, you know what I mean? It just does, that sort of thing doesn't appeal to everybody. And when I'm sitting, again, if I talk about a herd, I'm sitting inside a group. That's okay. I have the, um, you know, I have the certain security through being part of a mass. But I do understand now also from a conductor's point of view that if, you, if you're a wind player and you're playing a particularly dangerous part or uh, that sort of thing can just be really upsetting because, you know, it's really hard what you're trying to do. You're trying to pick a very specific moment and someone out the front is drawing a phrase which is happening in the next bar that's not helping you very much and you're not sure if what you hear in that moment is exactly what it is and you'd be really grateful if he could help you hear so you know i i'd see now how for some and i understand why there was certainly some great criticism of him uh, and his conducting style from some colleagues uh, who just found it way too unclear and made their life too dangerous and uh, and it made them feel very uncomfortable. And there was certainly a large fraction also of old Currianites who basically found everything weak. Um, uh, he would tend to be a lot more flexible. He would be very flexible with his tempos. Um, his phrases really breathed and... Um, 
I think for some people that went a little bit against a, a steadier flow, which may have been something that Curran was very good at establishing. He went about also, I think, fracturing the sound a little bit in that he did ask for beautiful sound. Abado himself was trained in Vienna and the whole sound aesthetic thing, I think he, he took from there. And nevertheless, though, he was, you know, he would go for the harsher colors sometimes and try and incorporate them in his aesthetic. Uh, it, rather than have to place such great emphasis on homogeneity as perhaps Karian might have done, I can only really say this judging from things that I know. Mm. You know, it's it's, mm. it's I feel a little wrong passing judgment on it. I can only say that's what Abada did, which then Simon Rattle, when he came, took to another level altogether. I think for Simon, the whole idea of homogeneity uh, only had specific musical relevance at certain moments, but was certainly not something to be made a central aesthetic or central um, uh, factor to to music making in general. Um, And so he was very much about trying to highlight the panoply of colours which exists in an orchestra. I mean, you can do two things with an orchestra. What you can do, you can try and, and, and focus the sound towards a common taste, in other words, try and uh, unify it as much as you can, or you can celebrate also some of the diversity in the orchestra of there being softer sounds, brighter sounds, harsher sounds, uh, more direct sounds, more indirect sounds, harder fronts to the notes, softer notes, and you can make that a central focus, the fact that an orchestra is indeed an incredible palette of colours. Um, and this is one of the jobs of a conductor, and this is one of the inf- things a conductor can have an influence on an orchestra, is, is, is d- influencing uh, that taste in a certain direction. I think one thing is that when you work with orchestras here, like Berlin and then Vienna and maybe other orchestras too, they certainly, we, we come, and this is the tradition part of things, we come with a certain aesthetic of our own. You know, this is, it, it starts when we listen to auditions, the sorts of things we're listening for. And where it's not going to work then is if your aesthetic is so far removed from, let's say, a couple of central uh, points that exist within the orchestra, then it's not going to work. And that's a relationship which is maybe doomed over time. But a certain amount of, a certain amount of uh, friction is always necessary. You're now well into, or shall we say, moving into the Petranco period. And uh, you quite rightly corrected me in the um, Salon when I said that the uh, Berlin Philharmonic didn't play opera. And of course you do. And of course, Petrenko is really very well known as an opera conductor. What, how do you feel that? How do you sense that within the orchestra? What's, what's, what's the, is there a something that you could sort of sense there that you can say, oh, yeah, I'm getting something here. This orchestra plays we're going to learn, we're going to play perhaps a little bit differently because of this we already do play differently mm. um i mean if i just listen a little bit to what we've done with him and it has still hasn't been so much he's really just getting started now in january mm. 20 this is his uh, his work in the bavarian state opera is now tailing off and he uh, for example now in january he'll do two programs and uh, he did the uh, new year's eve concert as well so within the space of one month it'll be three programs this is more than he's ever done with us so far but nevertheless the the, the few times he's been here now um i i can already feel the orchestra plays differently um and yes it's bound up with the way he conducts the physicality of the way he conducts his movements, the, the energy he uses when he conducts. I mean, you know, it's there are many uh, subconscious influences a conductor can have on an orchestra, and the physicality of how they conduct has an influence. 
if someone is has very powerful punchy gestures i think you're going to hear that and if someone is only flowing and uh, you're going to hear it maybe also smear around the edges a little bit i mean everything has a has a role but they're so subtle it's a bit like uh, comparing i don't know the taste of of wine, of the same wine over different years i mean you can get it horribly <laughs> wrong with yeah. your theories um so i i i warn myself against being too um cocksure about my judgments but nevertheless there is a difference and um i find the orchestra is playing incredibly well together there is a a real sense of common purpose i'm experiencing at the moment which is certainly bound up with the initial period where everyone's still very excited about it all i uh, we play much closer to his beat than i've ever experienced with this orchestra and this orchestra's usually resisted attempts by conductors to move it closer to the beat but he's got a way of making it happen so that it still feels right. Um, I'm still to get behind exactly how that works. Uh, and he demi- demands a high degree of, um, I don't want to use precision or accuracy because that's too dry, but uh, he hears very, very clearly. And there are things that, once pointed out, we hear too. Mm. And suddenly you're not happy with anything less. So shall we call it quality or... Mm demanding i don't know he just awareness it yeah. clear, cleans out the earwax a little bit yeah. maybe <laughs> mm. um so there's that there's that side of it um there's also um i think you know in an orchestra like this where you have an unbelievable group of dynamic personalities you know all the principal players are world-class solos in their own right with a ton of things to say um, and yet when you play together in an orchestra, somewhere, somehow you have to find a coherence. And yet you don't want to tread on these beautiful, um, uh, you know, uh, organisms. You know, you don't want to kill them so that you get unity. You see, so that's, <laughs> I've never conducted the Berlin Phil, but I think that must be one of the hardest things to do is how can you activate all of that potential and not kill it and yet still get it to unify in its sense of direction? And I have this feeling that this is something Petrenko is quite good at. Mm. He's quite good at winning people over to his way of doing things. Or, like I said, you hear it with his ears and you suddenly realize, oh, we, yeah, he's actually right. We should, you know, be a comment he made in the rehearsal. But, yeah, maybe. And uh, and so that's what I've been struck by is that there is this sort of unity of purpose uh, in our orchestra, which, I don't know, I find it really, really exciting. You know, it's not about each individual trying to outplay the other. There'll always be a bit of that. And that's part of what makes this orchestra, I think, really special. But it's it's being molded. Already now, I feel like there's a certain molding process going in. And it, I'm, I mean, I, I find it very enjoyable to play because uh, in the end, you know, I, I have a highly developed set of skills and I'm actually quite grateful when someone demands of me that I mm. use them okay. rather than just get away with I mean I think the first ingredient of frustration is the feeling it doesn't matter anyway mm-hmm. because that's the beginning of a, lo- a slippery slope that leads down to callousness and, uh, and, and, and a very very low feeling of self esteem you know? and the thing is it does matter and uh, suddenly you realise oh you can we can do all of this stuff your move to conducting also started with Abado, though, didn't it, as well? You got the position, you, you started to play, and then basically something changed. Your needs changed, and you moved towards conducting. When did you realise that conducting was something you wanted to spend more time doing? 
Um, well, I realized very early after I got the job as a second violinist, in a Tutti second violinist, that um, whilst there were many challenges that I faced in that job, some of the best ways to address the challenges that I had in front of me was to pursue my own individual goals as a violinist still. In other words, I needed more than just playing in the orchestra. And so for the first 10 years, actually, it was string quartet playing that fulfilled that function for me. So within the string quartet environment with some very, very trusted and and treasured uh, um, friends, I must say, uh, we, we pursued uh, string quartet playing very seriously. And that gave me that room for individual expression and experimentation in, in, in the questions of interpretations that I felt I needed and which wasn't I wasn't going to get only from the orchestral environment. But it was actually, and then the conducting came about, about um, actually almost a bit by chance because, and again, it was, it was, I think I said this, it was Brett Dean who invited me out to Australia. So my conducting career really began in Australia at Australian Music Camp where I, he invited me as, as camp director to work with a, with a string orchestra called the... Yeah, both the, you and I know who Brett Dean is. Brett Dean is a former member of the orchestra viola player and, uh, of course, today one of today's most sought-after composers. And um, this was when? What, middle of the 90s or something? Or? No, this is, a, I think, 2001. Okay. Um, and so Brett was still a member of the orchestra at that time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so I was out in Australia... I had this large string orchestra to look after at Australian Music Camp, and I thought that meant I would select the repertoire, I'd do the rehearsals with them, and I would train them to play independent of me, so an unconducted, which is quite not uncommon for string orchestras. But the repertoire was quite complicated, and um, and then when I arrived in Australia, Brett said, no, 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 I don't think that's going to work. I think you're going to have to conduct it. So... Without much forewarnings from one day to the next, I think there's no better way to start something because who can expect anything of you then, you know? It's the, the freest, most in, freest environment you can to try anything out is without being told it until the time it is that you have to do it. And so I had two weeks of that and I had a, a really, really wonderful time. And, um, and at the end of it, there were several people who were encouraging me to take it more seriously. First of all, Brett Dean was encouraging me. Um, I'd also met John Currow. Mm -hmm. uh, from Queensland who'd recently passed away and I'd watched his work and realised oh there's a lot to this actually I mean, the, the, the former conductor of the uh, Queensland Youth Orchestra and of course the initiator of the careers of many people the inspiration of the career the uh, musical careers of many people along the way yes John Kuro in Queensland yeah that's right so I mean I, I, I got words of um, encouragement and so when I returned to Berlin I, I set about trying to find or trying to work out how I could pursue this because the thing about learning conducting is you need an orchestra. Conducting is a horrible thing to study because you can't buy an orchestra and practice on it. You need an orchestra. You, Of course, there's many things you can learn a little bit in theory. You can learn plenty of things in class and talk about it. But I talked earlier about the value of learning by doing. Well, I think this is certainly conducting is one of those things. You need to learn it by conducting. And then it's a little bit like getting your pilot's license. I think you need simply to do 10,000 hours. And then maybe you can say you have a, a, an understanding of what's going on. It doesn't mean you're necessarily a good conductor, but at least you've seen a lot of the situations <laughs> you can be confronted with. So I was fortunate. When I got back to Berlin, I actually found not just one, but two um, community orchestras that were looking for a conductor. Um, and these these are amateur orchestras made up of 
great variety of people. I mean, from students to professionals. And a number of them uh, had pursued musical studies even at tertiary level. They'd done like parallel uh, law and music and then at some point made the very sensible decision to become a lawyer and, uh, <laughs> and, and keep music as their hobby. Um, and, and they're, but at a, at, a, at a high level. So together with these orchestras, I, I had, well, I had the opportunity at least once a week to stand in front of them and conduct. And I began to do repertoire because that's the next thing. You have to really start learning. You have to do as many pieces as you can. And with two orchestras, I had a chance to do four programs a year. Um, and that was, let's say, that formed a very important staple uh, for my initial years as a conductor before it then turned towards professional ensembles, um, beginning with some ensembles of members of the Berlin Philharmonic. Um, I would work also with the Karyan Academy, of which I myself was a graduate. Um, and then there were some invitations in Australia. I mean, Melbourne was um, very good and invited me quite early in Tasmania. Canberra I enjoyed going back to very often. And then there were orchestras also here in Europe and then the, some in Asia. Um, and so it was a, a, a mixture of experiences. Uh, I got involved with youth orchestras as well because I realized this is something I can, you know, having learned everything in some ways the hard way, I realized I had a fairly good uh, foundation for pedagogical work because I, from my work with amateurs and or with youth, I, I have sort of I'm awareness for every problem that can arise with an orchestra. So, <laughs> and I have some solutions for them. So it worked. I realized that that was something I'm very good at too. Um, and this continued uh, until really uh, relatively recently in 2004 or oh, well, beginning of the 2010s. I began doing some appearances as a guest conductor with the Berlin Symphony Orchestra or Symphony Orchester Berlin, as it's known in German. Um, and, uh, and then from 2014, I was officially appointed their principal conductor. And uh, now I do 10 concerts a year with them and uh, in the Philharmonie. And the concerts are sold out as a concert series which has existed for over 60 years and it's very popular here. And uh, so that's my good fortune. You mentioned there, you know, as far as training goes, many, many years ago I met Igor Ozem when he, when he was about to retire, a very famous violin teacher. And he said something that I'm sure a lot of people have said in the meantime or before that as well. But he did say that he found that people were playing much better these days, technically, that musicians were better trained. But he said something very interesting he said there's still only that same amount of special talent he said you know you'll find people playing technically more proficient but that that special extra was just as rare as it always was would you agree with that well i think we're certainly that the level of playing is going up and up and up i that you i hear that at every audition i attend i mean the the level is certainly very high but i i would actually focus a little bit more and ask myself what is that special something and Yes, there is that what you call X factor or personality or charisma. That is special, particularly if you want to make a mark as a soloist. But, you know, there are many other roles for an instrumentalist, and particularly a lot of instruments find their principal calling in an orchestra. I mean, let's just take the, the wind instruments, for example. Uh, a lot of the greatest repertoire for these instruments is as a member of an orchestra. And the same goes for string players as well. And that special something, I think actually what it is, it's an interest that goes beyond just the violin playing. Because what I would say in reply to Igor Ozim is that in the end, the violin repertoire still consists of the same pieces over and over again. I mean, there's only one instrument which has, let's say, a universe of repertoire unto itself, and that's piano. Mm. The violin comes then second, but a fairly distant second. Um, yeah, and It's not too bad. 
It's okay, but I mean, it, it dwindles very quickly once you move on past cello to viola and then, you know, the wind instruments. Everybody, uh, you know, if you want to become a soloist in those areas. And I think what makes, for me, the interesting musician is someone who goes beyond their own instruments and looks into the world or the universe of music. So it will be, it will include the piano repertoire, but it will, and it took me a long time to get there, but it will include the symphonic repertoire and then all of the chamber music. Now, if this is your world, if this is your universe, then there's no doubt in my mind, if you're just by nature interested and you wish to partake of it, you will be the more, in some ways, the more interesting musician simply because your universe is bigger. Mm. I think if, if it is limited just to the violin, one is going to sense that, particularly if one's not a violinist. I mean, the violinists all go gaga, but maybe everybody else goes, okay, but but what? I don't know. This is That would be a little bit my uh, how I would uh, rephrase what Ozim said. Yes, of course, special, special talent. Uh, that, the, the amazing performer, that, that, that personality where everybody in the hall just smiles. That remains, uh, that remains as rare uh, as ever. Um, but I think one thing any musician can do, if you love music, my advice to you would be go and listen to lots of music. Go and listen to a lot of music for instruments other than your own. Um, always just listen to stuff. Go. I think that in the end, that's the great fortune we have because uh, the world is a, is a huge and colorful place in music. And um, you can do a lot of carbon neutral traveling just by listening to music from all different cultures around the world as well what about you how did you change when you went back you've become a conductor did you get more sympathetic to the conductor <laughs> uh, i learned to reserve judgment <laughs> and not not be so hasty and uh, i mean for me of course i see the conductor and i can observe many many things in the way they work i can see for it begins in the rehearsals how are they using their time what do they focus on i'm aware of many difficulties and uh, and so usually the fascination is simply to see how they deal with it how they deal with it with this particular orchestra too because again i've conducted many orchestras but i haven't conducted the berlin phil um and and just to see where they place their priorities how they go about doing of course you can always um, watch how they conduct and pick up one or the other um, i don't know little things uh, but that's quite a dead end if you just try and imitate another conductor physically that you don't get very far um and that's something i've tried to um not do the only thing i notice is if you do watch one conductor for a long time without even realizing it, you begin to emulate it it's that's sort of you, that you. You can't help that. But like I said, the most interesting thing is simply to watch how they use their time, how they develop, what emphasis they place, and then of course to see what they do in the concert. I mean, I know the piece as well. I can see where their attention is. I can see when they're conducting from memory. Also, if they've looked at something after it happened rather than before. In other words, I know all of. I know a lot of the phenomena of what it's like to be on stage, and uh, I know how complex it is. I know how. You've got a million things you could focus on. You're in a rehearsal. You've got a hundred things you could say. And how do you know at that moment not to say anything or to say just that one thing? And how far do you go? And when do you stop? I mean, this is uh, this is the most most acute time management you'll ever have to do in your life. Is how to structure a rehearsal, for example. Speaking of time management, you've established yourself here. You've made your home here in Berlin. You're married to a 
woman from Queensland, a cellist, Rowena, and of course uh, three grown-up children here and in various capacities, uh, uh, being busy as the father, being busy at the, the orchestra, doing more than just playing, of course. You're also involved in the administration there and various aspects of that as well. When I'm involved in administration, I'm also involved in the running of the hall, and this is also the hall in which I am a chief conductor of another orchestra which plays solely in this hall. They don't, they're not immediately connected, but I... it. It just I'm illustrating how everything basically happens, mm. not just in Berlin for me, but in the Berlin Philharmonie. And so uh, everything else is uh, simply a matter of being well organized and um, a certain reliance on myself that I can work quickly. The danger is always superficiality. Um, sometimes I do think I would like to perhaps reduce the variety of what I do to focus, and I would say here more specifically on conducting, uh, so as to perhaps uh, go deeper, go further, or make it my sole focus. Because I find that the activity of conducting um, itself offers a diverse r- r- uh, range of challenges because the conducting is the one thing, but there's a lot of managerial work in conducting, even if you're not part of administration, because there's rehearsal structures, there's uh, there's um, there's dates planning, there's planning programs for the whole season. There's uh, many artistic components to it, which also take up a lot of your time. So conducting is really worthy of a full-time job. And I could, that's the one development I could still envision in my life um, looking ahead is that maybe... There'll be an orchestra out there which uh, I get to know and they get to know me. We have the feeling, yes, maybe the next five years will be something for both of us and and I can bring my experience to them and uh, together we can make a mark. I think that's... And for that, I would would consider leaving uh, my job in the orchestra as a player and focusing solely on conducting. But that is, it's like a dream. It's, a, it's something that might happen. It's something that might not happen. And in the meantime, I'm enjoying very much what it is that I have to do here. What about looking back to Australia and the relationship you have with Australia these days? You've got both your parents there. You've got two siblings living there. Uh, how involved are you? How up to date do you stay with what's happening back home i mean we talked about it before it used to be faxes and you know okay scrambling for a newspaper here or there to find out bits and pieces how do you feel about australia these days well i'm always uh, every time i check my email i'm hoping there'll be an invitation to come and do something out there (laughs) um yeah it doesn't happen that often but uh i have um fairly regular contact with my parents not so much um they manage to make it over to europe once a year so i see them for two or three weeks here where they attend as many concerts as they can. You know, I have uh, subscriptions to various newspapers, and, uh, and I've got the ABC as a as a bookmark on my on my browser. So yes, I am as much as I can keeping uh, an eye on the world from the Australian point of view. But it isn't. Uh, I mean, it isn't the way I see the world at all. I mean, I'm I am very much here in Germany, and I think my outlook on the world is probably now much more from a German perspective than an Australian perspective. Um, the connection I feel and the um, the bond I feel to Australia is on a, it's on a somehow deeply emotional level, and um, I, I'm removed from day to day life in Australia quite thoroughly, actually. Um, and uh, the fondest memories I have of Australia are being somewhere in an isolated spot, um, sensing 
the wilderness and sensing actually in many ways what I consider to be a, a harsh environment, which mm. is always gives you a little bit that sense of uh, your real place in the universe and it gives you a sense of modesty. It's a wonderful way to feel existence i find in those remoter parts of australia and uh, and then there is a beauty a beauty which i consider to be raw and um and which appeals to me i realize it's it's something that i've absorbed and uh, and i it, it's a part of me as well we talked about it in the salon and it might be nice to talk about it again a little bit now you are of course of mixed heritage your mum was chinese your dad irish background you grew up in Australia. How was that? I think uh, at the time I was growing up, there was a lot less diversity than it became. I mean, this is the 70s, and beginning in the 90s particularly, I think there was a move towards a great, much greater Asian diversity, certainly. Um, and until then, there had, of course, Australia's always had its waves of uh, immigrants um, from Southern Europe, Greece, Italy. Um, I think in the 80s, it was very much the Vietnamese who were the refugees of the time. So, I mean, Australia's always been multicultural from that point of view. But nevertheless, I would have said in the 70s, it still felt like my memories of it are white Anglo-Saxon, mm. to be honest. And that's very much the environment I grew up in. And that's the Australia I also, I guess, still remember. So some of the developments in Australia have passed me by in that respect. And um, I can be quite struck sometimes when walking around uh, parts of Australian city centres how not only diverse, but just how I would, I'm ashamed to say how foreign it, all, yeah. it seems in that there are obviously people, um, many, many people um, who have heritages outside that Anglo, white Anglo uh, sphere. I mean, in some ways, I, I welcome it. Um, it. It's fantastic, but it's not the Australia I grew up in, I, I, if I'm honest, I think. Mm. How at home do you feel here? In Berlin, I feel very at home because I think Berlin is uh, a little atypical for Germany in that it is very cosmopolitan um, it's very diverse in many aspects um, economically socially heritage wise um, it's a large city um, and it has a sort of live and let live atmosphere about it I mean you can be anybody you can be any weirdo you want to be here <laughs> but it's somehow no one will turn their head I'm sometimes I, I sometimes think that maybe and this is said with a not great amount of knowledge about the United States but I think sometimes Berlin is to Germany what New York is to the United States there's sort of a slight uh, they are a, a microcosm of their own that uh, don't quite conform to national stereotypes so you, you really get everything here and, and I must say I feel absolutely at home here mm. I mean I, I appreciate that very much and it's a very mixed bag I mean the primary um uh, let's say um, immigrant culture here will be the Turkish Arab mm. I suppose you would say yeah, um, versus in Australia perhaps the Asian component at the moment um, but you know all of it is uh, what I like is that you can go to a different part of Berlin and experience something completely different you can even experience different times in history you can still go to a part of Berlin and feel like you're in the, in the, in the GDR 
So I, ra- I rather like that, that there are all sorts of time capsules in this city. Mm. What about here? Uh, you're, like we, I mentioned before, you're, you're two Australians with three children. How important a role has Australia played in the, the, the lives of the kids, for example? Uh, very different, actually. I mean, I think that all three of them, well, they all carry Australian passports because of the um, naturalisation laws here. They would have, they'd have to give it up if they want to become German and they don't want to give it up, which is something I understand because they feel an emotional attachment to the country through their parents. Um, they went to a German-American school and that meant they were Australians in a cosmopolitan environment where Australian, though, well, being Australian was the exotic component. And we observed simply how all three kids developed very different friend um, uh, groups of friends. Um, One of them oriented more towards German speaking or, or, or let's say, divided it quite evenly. Another son had definitely had more English speaking friends because, like himself, an English guy from England or from South Africa or from America and... uh, and the daughter moved in the direction of music, which has now taken her to just a German-speaking school. But that was something that surprised us a little bit, was in this bilingual environment, how what you can't influence as a parent is exactly to what degree their, their own personal emphasis will become in the different languages, and hence also the different cultures. Mm-hmm. I think as it's turned out for them, uh, certainly for my two sons, and even the son who really positioned himself in the middle of, of both English is certainly still their dominant culture being the, the language uh, or, or language being the language spoken at home it's the language where they feel probably the most able to express themselves and yet they are they are absolutely fluent in both languages and i think as far as their relationship to australia is concerned uh, there's i have one son who's now returned to australia and is studying at university of queensland and i would say he has an idea of what australia is like but the other two will remember australia only as that um, country of holidays, of grandparents, and of the sorts of things you only do when you're on holiday. In other words, the real life, um, uh, you know, the ups and downs, and particularly the downs, and uh, they ha- they have no experience of that. And um, it's the second son I find who is probably now the most genuine Australian, perhaps even of all of us. I mean, he's up to date. I'm not. <laughs> How represented do you feel as an Australian artist outside of Australia? I don't find that it makes that much... Uh, I don't think that's my main descriptive characteristic here, for example. I mean, as a musician in Berlin, certainly if if you know if there's like an article or an interview, they almost will always associate me with my institution, mm. Berlin Philharmonic, mm. um, and not so where I come from. I mean, that will find some... Unfortunately, my... my, my um, my biography is a little muddied because although I'm Australian, I was born in Canada, so sometimes it ends up turning out that people describe me as Canadian mm. uh, because I was born but moved immediately away from Canada um, and I'm no longer a Canadian citizen. But So somehow the, the whole, I don't know, I think people look at me with my mixed heritage anyway and think, well, that just looks too complicated. We'll just we'll move on. <laughs> uh, I could understand that. Yeah, 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 really. I have two sentences. I'd like you to finish. The first one is, I know I'm an Australian when. <laughs> oh, <this. laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking so long. I, I, I can't, it's because it's, I have to really, yeah, I know I'm Australian 
when I hear another Australian and I hear the accent, the rhythm, the melody, the sounds, and it there's something inside me that just relaxes. And it's like I can take a barrier down and it's that feeling of being at home. And I find it in the way the language sounds. I know that's a little indirect, but uh, I know I'm Australian when I'm in Australia and uh, I look out onto a eucalypt forest with its greys and browns it's, and that sense of wilderness but also melancholy of the eucalypt forest which I absolutely love. It's not bright gaudy rainbow colours, they're muted greys and greens and, and there's a smell that goes with it and there are sounds which go with it and uh, it's like the language. They, I feel attached. Uh, and they're, they're the sorts of things that I remember too. Um, yeah. Nice. I think you probably answered my next question, but because it, it, I was going to ask you, when I think of Australia, I think of... Well, a horribly long flight. <laughs> that's the, <laughs> I, yeah, that's true. I've been, I've been an expat for too long, <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, 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 I know this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, well, I mean, what I really think of, I mean, it's blinding light, actually. Mm. That's one thing I notice when I go to Australia is there's more light in Australia at any time of year. The other thing that's also in Australia that I only know from there is the depth of the blue sky when it's blue sky. I've always thought, is it the southern hemisphere or why is it? But I don't know that color of sky anywhere else. Dan, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and, uh, yeah, for talking to me today and for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much, Brendan. musician Stan Dodds speaking to me there. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it via social media or by emailing the link. And don't forget to visit our website for more information about what I do, tool-poppies.com or drop me an email to info at tool-poppies.com. It's been nice to have you with me today. Till next time, this is Brendan O'Shea saying goodbye from Berlin.